Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm Ian Haney Lopez. I'm the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Public Law at the University of California, Berkeley. And it's my pleasure to be the moderator for today's Commonwealth Club program, The Making of Latino Identity, an American Story. And I'm so pleased to be joined with my friend and colleague, Laura Gomez. She's the director of the Critical Race Studies Program uh, and also the holder of the Rachel F. Moran Endowed Chair at the University of California, Los Angeles Law School. She is the author of this amazing and important new book, Inventing Latinos, A New Story of American Racism. This is a critically important book uh, for the for the moment. Um, this is telling the story of how Latinos have um, been racialized in the United States. It's both a historical, it offers a historical perspective, but also insightful contemporary uh, commentary. And we're going to turn to a conversation about that book right now. Before we do, uh, a reminder um, please do feel free to ask questions. In terms of posing your questions, you can post them in the YouTube chat box um, or you can post them in the Facebook comment section. The Commonwealth Club will uh, forward those questions to me and we'll turn to your questions uh, in just a little bit. But first, I want to begin with Laura um, Laura, you know, um, one of the things that you do in this book is you're, you're really you're telling a lot of the history and you're telling um, uh, this sort of c colonialism and U.S. Uh, practices um, and then it's contemporary ramifications. But one thing you don't do. And so this is like this is like I'm coming in. I'm not sure if this will, if you'll be comfortable with this. And if you're not, we'll we'll go to the more academic side. But you don't locate yourself in the book. And this is right, this is like the, the scholars versus the trade press. You're telling such an important story. But we don't gain a sense of your own family. Um, and I wonder, I, you know, let me invite you, um, if you care to, to, to start this story by saying, well, where are you in this? Um, what's your family history? Where did you go, grow up? Um, how do those things give you insight into uh, the the racial identity of Latinos? Oh, I love that question, Ian. Thank you so much for that opportunity. And it's funny because in the writing process, my editor and I went through a little bit of back and forth, and I wanted to actually insert more of that. And it was, you know, it, it, it's always what you put in and what you don't is always a, a, a challenge, right? Because you can't do everything in a book. But um, so I will, I guess I'll start out by saying that I grew up in Albuquerque in the 1970s. And at the time that, that I was, was coming of age or, or, you know, just going through schooling, Albuquerque was a pretty segregated city in the following way. Um, the, the, the Hispanics, which was the terminology that's a little bit more often used there, Mexican-Americans were were in the valley, either the South Valley or the North Valley along the Rio Grande River. And the whites were in what we called the Heights, which was as you kind of got closer to the mountains, the Sandia Mountains in Albuquerque, that was, you know, whiter area. And, and that division is actually not nearly what it is one because the North Valley has become more 
desirable and and you know uh for for affluent folks and because the kind of lower heights has become you know less desirable but in my world of growing up um until i went to harvard i was surrounded by uh, by Mexican Americans and schooling and and my family and such, and so I grew up with a um, a strong identity as Chicana, um, but I didn't have as much of a sense of the world around me. And you know, I had this Chicano Chicana identity because my father had gone to college as a as a, a parent um, in the '60s and been you know, activated and, and part of creating the Chicano movement. And both of my parents were involved in political activities. And, and we, you know, I was taught to be very proud of being a mestiza and, um, you know, brown is beautiful and, and uh, very much a family where we celebrated African-American civil rights heroes and victories and, you know, this was kind of my, my world. And I, I didn't have that much sense of, of, you know, how, how necessarily how everybody else saw the world until I went to college. And that, that was a shock. So, so let me, I, I'm just going to come in to, to, um, partly because I think that, you know, for, for you and I talking about a Chicano identity or a Mestiza identity, as opposed to Hispanic identity, those things make, make sense to us, but let's unpack them a little bit for our audience. And one way I want to start is by saying, okay, you, you're saying you grew up in a, basically a, a, basically a Mexican American world. And I guess I want to start there by saying, so did you have a sense of yourself as did you have a, a, a racial sense of yourself or was that more of a cultural conception of being Mexican-American? And then I, I suspect that the answer is going to be they kind of blur, but why they blur in your father's role and a political vision of race. I, I suspect the answer is going to go in that direction, but I thought I'd just like sort of probe a little bit more deeply. Yeah, actually, I would say that it was it was a pretty strong racial identity, um, probably unlike most of my classmates, you know, who had a more cultural identity. But I think because of our uh, the politics and the fact that, you know, every day at the dinner table, we were talking about politics and we were talking about history and and we were talking about black politics. Uh, uh, you know, I remember that I have one one brother who's a year younger than me, Miguel, and you know, we all voted for Jesse Jackson, you know, twice, right? In the, in the primaries. And this was just kind of our, our, our sense of ourselves was as another quote unquote minority group along with African-Americans um, to the point that when, you know, my big, my intellectual roots really stem from, from in college trying to figure out well, how are Mexican Americans different from African Americans, and what is the, you know, what is the the story um, there, right? And it's kind of still been, you know, all these these decades later, still been what I'm driven by. Yeah, that makes sense. Let me let me come back and say, you know, to answer the question about race, you talk a lot about politics and history, um, and and you talk about your father being politicized. Um, and this uh, and, a, and a Chicano identity. 
can you can you say a little bit more about how you understand race itself? Because you're you're writing this book called Inventing Latinos: A New Story of American Racism. You're you're, you're saying to the audience, "Hey, I want to tell you about Latino racial identity." So maybe we should. But so, what do you think race is? Yeah, well, let's let's step back one one level and just talk about uh, the kind of conventional wisdom about Latinos, right? The conventional wisdom is, well, we're talking about many different ethnic groups, and these ethnic groups are Mexican Americans and Puerto Ricans and Cuban Americans and so forth, and those are national origin groups. They're they're immigrant groups, and we think about them in ethnic terms, but but. What I'm suggesting is, 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 in fact, not that it's invalid to think about these groups in terms of ethnic terms. That is, that is you know, that is a reality, right? And, a, and part of how people think of themselves. But that there's also a racial dynamic operating. And that racial dynamic is one that, that um, it really happens much more at the macro level, at the, the level of institutions and, you know, historical trends and government policy and so forth. And so I'm interested in kind of bringing these two things together. Um, and, you know, you and I both, you and I both share a passion for writing about race and racism. And um, I, I guess in that sense, you know, thinking about how race becomes, um, how race changes and how notions of race changes. Um, you know, these things don't set in stone. They're influenced by how things have been in the past, but then they're also dynamic. And, you know, that's the social construction of race. Yeah. So, so you're talking about, and, and I noticed early in your book, you, um, you're a little bit more critical about ethnicity, saying ethnicity is sometimes is serving as an evasion of race. And there's a there's a, a a sense of Latino racial identity that you want people to to confront, um, that you want people to understand that Latinos have been racialized as not white, right? As a as a non-white race. Can you can you say more about that? Both this sense that there is a specific racial identity that applies to Latinos, however complex it'll be. And we'll, we'll talk about a lot of that complexity. And then also I want to push you a little bit more again, like what is race? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, let me, let me respond in three parts. One is to say that, that the thinking of, of, Latinos in terms of ethnicity is part of the racialization of Latinos, right? And and that serves particular functions, I think, especially with respect to African Americans, right? So when you have a situation where um, Hispanics have been presumed to be sort of ethnics, like white ethnics, who will over time assimilate and therefore can kind of live the American dream, you know, as opposed to this notion of African-Americans, even though there are immigrants, right? But this stereotypical notion of African-Americans as, well, they're, they're not succeeding and it's their own fault because we've solved all the law, the legal problems and we've made our, our laws fair. Right. So, so, 
that those that that there's a play there, right? Uh, a kind of a, a connection between ethnicity and race. Um, the second thing I'll say is that yes, my my hope is that people will engage this book and come to understand. Oh, well, if we understand, you know, that we can't talk about African American racialism racialization without talking about segregation, without talking about slavery, then we will actually realize that to talk about racialization of Latinos, we have to talk about U.S. imperialism in Latin America. And we have to talk about the links between that imperialism, which is not, it's in the past, but it's also in the present. We have to therefore think about immigration in a different way. And we have to think about segmentation at the the bottom of the the job market in that that way as well and that leads us to think about covid in a certain way and right all these all these kind of things that flow from that um and then the third thing i would say is coming back to how we understand race right and try not to get too kind of wonky in the way that you and i could by talking about um the all of the the kind of nuts and bolts or or you know details um race is my preferred way of of thinking about latinos because it emphasizes power right it emphasizes uh white supremacy and white dominance and by by making that shift and talking about power, then we can understand both going backward and forward in a different way. We can look at historical trends and we can say, ah, aha. And we can look at the future and say, let's not repeat the past, for example. Right. So I think that's the the shift. I love this. I love this. I'm going to I'm going to sort of say back to you what I heard, um, but I'm going to start with this idea, right? You're writing this incredible book about Latino racial identity. And the place to start is with the insight that race is not first and foremost about biology, that that's a mistake to think about it as biology. And I think that a lot of times when people think about race and they think white and black, white and black seem obvious as racial groups because people continue to accept uncritically a sort of a biological foundation to, to race and a sort of like, okay, well, people of European descent kind of look alike. So that makes sense that they're a race and people of African descent, right? But just pushing on that just a little bit will reveal incredible heterogeneity among people of European descent, incredible heterogeneity among people of, of African-American descent. And now, of course, there's incredible heterogeneity of people who trace their roots to Latin America, partly because Latin America saw a mixture of people not only from the Americas, but from Europe and from Africa. None of that disqualifies groups from being a race because races are first and foremost products of society. Right? And, and, I, and I love the, the way in which you invoked power. It's not, races aren't like these social ideas that are that are invented kind of willy-nilly they reflect power relationships they reflect um uh capitalism and exploitation um so so if we start there you know that's the that's where we're that that's the starting point i think for your analysis to say okay this is what race is 
race is a cultural product that reflects power, and in, and in particular, things like um, uh, slavery, capitalism, expropriation of land, colonialism, and its current manifestations. And we start from there, and then I think you go on to say, so to understand the, the racial, racialization of Latinos, let's understand the history of U.S. imperialism in the past and, and is sort of contemporary. And to me, what you're really pointing at there is this important insight that race is often external to a community, right? That, that, that U.S. imperialism was not something that Latinos could control. But then you also say, um, to understand Latino racialization, we have to think about it in relationship to the rela- racialization of African-Americans, to, to anti-Black racism. And partly there too, that's external, but partly that's starting to gesture toward, okay, what have Latinos done in order to push it, to position themselves in the United States, right? So we're, we're going to all these levels. Um, uh, in that context, I think, um, uh, well, you know, I want to go to the imperialism. I want to go to the, the sort of that, that history. But maybe before I do, I'm trying to think about what, what our audience is going to hear, um, and I think a lot of our audience, so so I would say, hey, audience, this is an amazing conversation. Here's how we're going to understand race, and now we're going to apply it to Latinos. But I suspect a lot of our audience will also be drawing on a common sense of Latino racial identity informed by the census. And that's a really important topic in your book, and it's, and it's really sort of a, a contemporary phenomenon. We can return to it again at the end, but before, before we really launch into some of the history... Can you say more about what's happening with the census? What's the understanding of Latino racial identity it promotes? Uh, why is it wrong? Um, you know, I love I love the fact that I love that you you point out that after the 2020 census, the second largest racial group in the United States is likely to be other. <laughs> and so, could you say more about the census and Latino racial identity? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, so sorry, I was distracted because I was getting some kind of weird error message on my, on my screen, but we're good. We're good. Um, I'm sure it related to something I said. No, I'm sure not. I'm sure not. It was some techie thing, but, um, not to blame the tech guys who are wonderful. Um, but, but let me, let me step. So I do absolutely want to talk about this phenomenon of sort of other race Latinos, right? But but to get there, let me just kind of follow up on something you said in your intro that is, I think, worth emphasizing. And that is, well, I talk about U.S. imperialism, but before U.S. imperialism, there were these four centuries of Spanish colonialism in Latin America, which is also part of the legacy of Latinos in, in the United States, right? And so there were 80... 80,000, an estimated 80, no, sorry, 80 million indigenous people in Latin America when the Spanish uh, colonized it. 10 million were left after Spanish contact, after deaths. Yes, and that was, you know, disease, but also, you know, the the military conflict, um, uh, forced labor and death through through that kind of abuse. Um, so the Spanish brought in African slaves and they brought in maybe 11 million. Right. And so 
in Latin America, what resulted was a, a mestizo population that was, you know, part Spanish, a relatively small part, part African and part indigenous, right? And so that um, that mixture kind of comes into the United States then, right? In a way in which we can say things like the census says, well, Hispanics can be of any race, they say. And, you know, that is true to a point, right? So, so the census took that seriously. And when they first counted Latinos in 1980, they said, oh, let's have a Hispanic ethnicity question. And so we all filled out our census forms recently, hopefully. So, so we have, we remember answering that question, are you Hispanic or Latino? Yes or no. But then we all had to fill out another question that said, what is your race? And that's the part that drives many Latinos, including myself, crazy, because, you know, you have these options, white. And I think, oh, I'm not white. I don't identify white. People don't see me as white. I have black. Well, I probably have some African ancestry, but I'm not going to I'm not going to say that I'm black. That would not be right. Um, Native American. Well, I have a lot of indigenous ancestry, but that's not I'm not claiming to be Native American. That seems wrong. Um, I'm not Asian American. Right. So then I get down to other, you know, and about 40 percent, a little bit more, probably in 2020, will choose other. Um, And to me, it is mind boggling that for 40 years, this has been happening and we haven't yet addressed it. it. It suggests to us that there's something wrong with those racial categories and that maybe the census categories haven't caught up to the processes that people experience in daily life, other, other people saying that they're not white. Um, which is not to say that Latinos haven't sometimes said that they're white and that some Latinos actually, you know, do believe that they're white and and check white on that box. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at the census, there's, um, I think you'll you'll remember the numbers better than I, but there's um, a, a significant number that check white. There's a there's a not insubstantial number that check black, but the numbers of Latinos checking other or something between thirty and forty percent consistently over the last forty years, and turned around, looked at the other way, when you say, well, what, which racial groups are checking others? It's overwhelmingly Latinos, like 95% more or, or more of the other category are Latinos, right? So one of the things that you're, that you're, that you're pointing out is, yes, there is this, there's this tremendous uh, diversity of the ways in which Latinos understand their own racial identity, but one of the ways they seem to understand their own racial identity is that it's not captured by the census. Um, you say the census kind of had a solution to this, but then rejected it. Yeah. Yeah. So let me just um, clarify those numbers because they're even more extreme, right? So it's actually 98.8% of those in the United States who say they're other are Latino, right? So there's virtually no one else is saying that they're other. Everyone else can find themselves. And remember, since 2000, we've been able to check more than one category, right? Um, Yeah, so this has been 37 to 43% of Latinos in all this time. So the census has basically tried different ways of of trying to to solve this problem. The latest thing that they did was, was after 
probably about five years of research, they recommended, oh, we should do away with this separate Hispanic ethnicity question and we should fold Latinos into the race question. And based on the research they did, which was quite exhaustive, they found that 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 um, 40 plus percent of Latinos were very happy with that. They chose Latino. And, and so you didn't get that other. And that a huge proportion of the, the people who chose white also checked Latino, that the 6% who chose black still chose black, but added black and Latino. And that the 3% of Latinos who chose Native American were comfortable with that still being Native American and Latino, right? So that was the solution. The Trump administration um, rejected the proposal, um, saying that it was too late to make changes to the 2020 census. And then a month later, they said, let's change the 2020 census by adding a citizenship question. Um, which, uh, well, you know, we, we kind of know what that story went like. Um, the Supreme Court denied that, that um, request or that change as um, arbitrary um, and really implied that it was uh, motivated by other factors, um, which we can, we can talk about. But I think, you know, and one of the things that you say in your book is, those two moves by the Trump administration are related. The Trump administration. So the census has struggled to understand and to measure accurately Latino racial identity um, uh, in large part because the census has tried to distinguish between what are implicitly real races, white, black, Asian American, Native American, and this other thing called Hispanic that the census has been telling Americans for the last 40 years is not a real race, but is instead something different, an ethnicity, such that these people can be of any other race. And, and, and Latinos, a lot of Latinos, the, the plurality of them have said, that doesn't make sense to us, right? And so the census figured out, okay, well, stop making a sharp distinction between race on the one hand and ethnicity on the other allow, you know, what ask people, what group are you associated with? And then you can have white, black, Native American, Asian American, Latino, and that took care of it, right? Latinos are like, now I can find myself. Now I see myself. Trump administration rejects that. And I think um, rejects it for the same reason they also try and introduce a citizenship question. Both are designed to drive down the number of Latinos that are actually counted by the census, right? Both are designed as a politics that um, uh, uh, suppresses information about the extent to which Latinos are a, a significant presence in the U.S. polity and should be represented politically, should be represented in terms of allocation of government funding and, and, and government programs. Um, one thing I want to pick up on and, and use this as a segue to the to the to the historical conversation. This idea that there are real races, white, black, Asian, Native American, and that Hispanics are not a real race, but that there's something else going on. And, and there, I, I think that the important point here is to say, um, at the level of biology, like at the level of nature created these races and not others, there are no real races, none whites don't exist as a real race, blacks don't exist. If we're talking biology, there are no real races. At the level of social construction, 
it, it might be tempting to say, hey, the, you know, Latinos are as real a race as any other group because all groups are socially constructed. But I actually think, you know, you're talking about in, inventing Latinos, a new story of American racism. And I think partly the, well, well correct me if I'm wrong, what is the new referring to like and it could be it could be that all you're saying is hey this is a story that really hasn't been told in a lot of detail before so it's i'm just telling a new something that's new in terms of the new information but it could be that you're also saying latinos are um still in the process of being turned into a race right that in that in that sense we're less real a racial group in the united states not as a matter of biology but because the social practices of racialization have less firmly constructed a concrete Latino racial identity than, say, a seemingly concrete white identity or a seemingly concrete Native American or African American identity. Well, I can see, Ian, how you you might come to that point of view, especially given, you know, some of your own work, right? But But honestly, it was not that, it was not that, uh, considered it, it, this was another instance. I had a wonderful relationship with my editor and at the new press, but this was another instance where, you know, she really wanted new in the title. And I think because it was new to people who didn't know about Latinos. Right. And I was like, wait, but this is historically rooted. That's the whole point of what I'm saying, you know? Right. But anyway, so, so it's not quite, although I think what you say is, is compelling. It certainly is happening because it keeps happening. Right. None of us, even how we think about, um, how we think about, you know, African-Americans, there's, it's dynamic, it's changing and it's, it's really political. It's political choices and political events that drive how racial categories change and evolve, right? And so even the category of whiteness, right? So who is white? Well, you know, in in uh, uh, 1900, it wasn't always the case that Italians were white in all contexts, uh, certainly, or that you know, Eastern European Jews who were new migrants were white. It wasn't, it wasn't the case. And in fact, it, interestingly, um, with respect to say Irish Americans, uh, you know, I talk about this in, in an earlier book that I wrote manifest destinies when sometimes it was the fact that Irish Americans were going to places like the Southwest and being side by side with Mexican Americans that made them whiter. Right. So that was, you know, those dynamics are, are always in play as well is, is like these, none of these categories are stable. Um, they're not certainly, as you, as you say, not rooted in anything real, but they, they have real effects because they, they don't go away. Right. They become kind of sedimented into our common sense um, well, and how well, we see say things. a little bit more than that, because, you know, one of the questions that's popped up in the chat is one of the, you know, the sort of, um, uh, Hey, only racists care about race, you know, and, it, and, and you can kind of, see, I, that, that response on the one hand seems a little goofy, but on the other hand, it, you can see it coming out of this conversation saying, you, you know, if, if somebody in the audience is saying, well, you guys are saying this is all invented, but aren't you, you know, just giving it more weight by talking about it all the time? Maybe well, why don't we just stop talking about this thing that is, after all, on, on one way of seeing races, it's a, it's all a massive fraud. 
all of these ideas are terrible lies. Why don't we stop talking about them? Yeah, that's, that's, you know, I hear this from my students a lot, right? Um, uh, because if we, we take seriously this idea that there's no real race, there's nothing in biology, you know, uh, that is, that is, you know, inherently racial. Um, so, so we should be colorblind, right? We shouldn't, we shouldn't, see race, you know, we should aspire not to see it and to get to aspiring not to see it, then we should not talk about it, right? We shouldn't, should not harden these categories, but I'm, I'm advocating something different, which is no, actually this has become a category. Um, and so we should mark it as such because race is important in our society. And I don't see a contradiction in that because we Again, it's 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 not as if we start on a clean slate. So if we say, okay, we're just going to pretend that race doesn't exist right now, um, you know, uh, I'm just going to go out in the world and so you know, someone needs to tell Donald Trump. Trump. Oh, sorry, well, exactly. <laughs> or you know, I mean, I have people here in LA. I have people shout out at me different things from time to time based on the way I look, uh, you know, and and I, you know, I have it good. I'm sure compared to to most people, right? I, I live very comfortably in a, you know, uh, overwhelmingly white part of Los Angeles. Right. And, and, you know, I don't, I, I have so many privileges, but I still get marked in a certain way. And, um, and that's because of these larger dynamics that we can't make go away by not talking about them. I think that that, I think that's exactly right. And I think it ties back to what you were earlier saying Racism is fundamentally about power. And um, in our society, you can't solve problems of power unless you can name them. And if, right, it's, it's no solution to say power manifests itself this way, so let's all just ignore it. Right. It's like we know that like ignoring problems doesn't solve. Right. So so um, but let's talk about that then. Um, um, where does race come from? What is the history of um, of power relations that that are sort of um, provide the foundation for Latino racial identity today, and um, I want to invite you back to talk about you, you talk about a double colonialism, the colonialism of Spain, and then the colonialism of the United States. And I, I wonder if you want to, uh, you know, offer some insights about how that influences Latino racial identity. Well, I think that the primary way that I would would invoke is that. We had so the Spanish, the Spanish colonial rule was also racist. It was also a, a regime of racialized power, and one in which uh, a proximity to Spanishness as whiteness was was the ideal and the kind of uh, a higher in the hierarchy the the top right. And the proximity to Indianness and the proximity to blackness was at the bottom, right? So, so if we layer onto that American imperialism, where Latin Americans were told, "Oh, the U.S. is um, the U.S. That, that white Americans are are more powerful, and that we're looking at you, whether we're looking in Puerto Rico or we're looking in Cuba or we're looking in Guatemala." We're looking at you through our lens that says that Africans, African descended people are at the bottom. You know, um, for example, when you look, when you go back and you look at newspapers in 
congressional debates about uh, the how to manage the territory of Puerto Rico and how to manage um, uh, uh, the the lands that came out of Mexico, for example, the New Mexico Territory, which didn't become a state until 1912, and Arizona. Um, what you see are these kind of comments about the mongrelization and how that itself, that mestizaje itself was a signal that these people are inferior. Um, but bringing that up to a, to kind of the more, a more recent period, we can see some of this playing out in the 20th century in places like Texas, where you look at Mexican Americans, um, fighting under a regime of de, de facto school segregation, but not de jure or segregation by law that African-Americans experienced, right? And so you see these these ways in which Mexican-Americans were able to position themselves as better off and above in that racial hierarchy, African-Americans. You know, so the proximity to whiteness was the the goal. I want to I explore that more. But before we do that, can I ask you about mestizaje? Because I think that that's a that's a concept that's really important in terms of um, the racial identity as it's developed in Latin America. Then it's very often offered as a way for Latinos to conceptualize their racial identity in the United States. Um, when you say mestizaje, what, what does the word mean? What work is it doing? Well, that's a big question. Um, you <laughs> that's know, for the next I, hour. <laughs> Uh, yeah, exactly. I I will go back just just briefly to what I said at the very beginning. In response to your first question is, you know, I I grew up with I think a uh, a frank in in our family a frank notion that we were indigenous. You know, as that that was part of our our ancestry, right? Um, that that our ancestors were indigenous, you know, because of colonialism, we didn't have any particular tribal affiliation, right? So it wasn't that kind of notion, but it was kind of like, oh yeah, that's why we, that's why we look the way that we are. We, we, you know, and, and of course in any family, you see that, that range of, of, um, of variation because there is that mixture of the indigenous and the African, uh, uh, ancestors and the Spanish ancestors, right? Um, but it wasn't really until later and and fairly recently in my life that I began to look back at some of the ideology of mestizaje as promulgated, for example, in Mexico of the 1920s, post-revolutionary Mexico, um, which was all wrapped around this notion of la raza cosmica, the cosmic race, right? That from all the different races, Mexico would be this great fifth race because Mexicans, true Mexicans were mestizos. Only recently could I go back and look at that history and see, oh, that actually was a, a ideology of white supremacy. And the reason is because it, it presumed the disappearance of indigenous people and the disappearance of black Mexicans, right? And so sort of now I have, I think, a much more, you know, critical view of some of that, that notion of mestizaje, especially because this idea that was happening in Mexico 
was influencing other Latin American countries because Mexico had, has long been one of the dominant countries of Latin America, right? Yes. So, so, you know, I have a really different view now, I think, about that. Yeah, that's so, that's so interesting. So we can think of mestizaje as, you know, coming out of the word mestizo, coming out of a sense of racial mixture. And I think, you know, you're making such an important point. It becomes elevated in certain Latin American countries, in particular in Mexico, as a as a as a biological claim that is aimed at um, promoting mixture as a denial of indigenous populations, as a denial of uh, Afro descended populations. It's like we're all going to mix. Um, and you also say that that mestizaje is also co uh, connected to blanqueamiento. Blanqueamiento. What, is, what does that mean? What's going on there? Well, blanqueamiento as, as um, practiced by those countries that were colonized by Spain was the idea, it's sometimes translated as bleaching or whitening, but it was the idea that, you know, to better yourself, you could make yourself whiter. Well, what would that involve? It, you know, it's it's not as if this is entirely foreign to what people do today in the United States. Um, you know, and there are historical records about this in actually all racial groups. Um, but you marry somebody who's lighter skinned than you are to, and you have children with that person, right? And then you hope that your children have, you know, marry somebody who's lighter skinned. So individual choices, but also as a society, and this is more powerful, I think, right? Certain societies like uh, Cuba, Argentina, Colombia, just to name a few, when they became independent of Spain, they said, we want our countries to be whiter. And so we're going to give homesteads to Europeans to come to our countries, right? And to make our countries whiter in that way. And those those countries, as well as others, very deliberately, and Mexico too, they didn't do it with homesteads, but they deliberately incentivized European migration in the early 20th century. And so that actually added more sort of white, white um, people to the population and then added this kind of sort of solidified that white layer. Right. And so we still, we still see that it, we, we see that in Latin America, but we also see it in the Latino population here where there's a color hierarchy. Yeah. And a lot of colorism, you know, one of the, one of them. So, so one of, so this way of understanding mestizaje is really mestizaje is erasure, right? Like, Oh, we're all mixed. But when you say we're all mixed, it becomes a way of saying, and therefore we're not going to, we're not going to actually focus on the differences. Um, you know, my own vague hope is that we can reclaim the word mestizo, not as in we're all mixed and therefore differences don't matter, but as in there are a lot of differences among Latinos, just as there are a lot of differences among other groups. And the fact of difference is something that we can celebrate. Um, but, you know, a question that comes up in the chat uh, uh, um, is really connected to this idea of erasure, and it actually goes to the term Latino itself. Like, is there is there an aspect, of, you're talking about inventing Latinos, is there an aspect of erasure in even the term? Um, and for example, you know, um, many activists now, many Latino activists now are using the term Latinx. Um, you know, are, are you worried a little bit about the erasure of the term Latino? Would Latinx have been better? Why didn't you use that term? 
So, so I, I want to absolutely get to that because it's a really important question, but I just want to come back and make one final kind of point about the conversation we were having before about La Raza Cosmica and this notion of, of the, the kind of complete mixture and elevating that, that mixture, right. As a, as the ideal, as opposed to the pure white ideal that we might have in the United States. It's, it's, it's important to understand that as an ideology of race, meaning that it's about power and politics, just the way that the notion of colorblindness in the U.S. is about power and politics, right? And so I think, I think we understand mestizaje in that way as a political tool, right, to enforce racial hierarchy, that just helps us, I think, understand how that operates. So yeah, I really did do some soul searching about terminology. And I do use Latinx in some, uh, I use it in the book a little bit. Um, and I have a long footnote on on why I don't use it exclusively. And the reason that it's appealing is because it is is not gendered, right? Which means it's, it's, it's able to talk about people who are gender fluid and non-binary. It's, it's a way for us to not emphasize the, the, the linguistic gendered nature, nature of Spanish in the word Latino versus Latina, for example. And that has a lot of appeal for a lot of reasons, right? It's, 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 embraces a lot of people and you know it, it it is gaining some currency in particular i don't know if you're experiencing this but around my students you know it's gaining a lot of currency um at the same time i feel like it's i feel like it's a bit trendy and maybe this is just you know me in my 50s sounding old i don't know how how you feel about it ian being also in your 50s no, no come on now you didn't need to go there <laughs> The audience did not know that. <laughs> That's true. I look, I look much older than you. You're right. Uh, My gray hair. I'm, I, I'm prematurely gray. I'm 27. Yes. That's right. That's, that's oh, the no, only wait a minute. That, that's how long I've been in academia. We, we, we actually both started when we were 12. That's yeah, why exactly. we've been so long in academia. But, uh, but no, I feel like it's, a, I guess I do sound a little fuddy-duddy when I think of this, but I just feel like it's, it's, it's trendy and I don't know if it's gonna, I don't know if it's gonna last. So, so I didn't, you know, I feel like you write a book and that book is there and it's there for posterity. And so, you know, I, I, I chose not to use that, that term widely, but I have no, I do, I, 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 I find it you know, I, I want to have that kind of embrace that that term um, invites, right? So I'm I'm not um, I'm I'm not denying its its appeal. In that yeah, way. I think that's right. I mean, I think that um, any term when you try and use a single term to encompass a really diverse population group, it runs the risk of erasure. That's just an occupational hazard. I mean, there's always that tension between categorization and specificity. Um, but I think that the, you know, just as with mestizo, I'm hoping we can reclaim it in a way that emphasizes difference and connections across difference rather than an asserted homogeneity. Um, but in that context, let me, you know, I guess I, I want to also ask you about, um, like, 
how have Latinos positioned themselves in terms of race in the United States? And I think we could understand you could you could address that either as the sort of, you know, here's the history, 1930s, 1950s um, or now. Right. We're in this contemporary moment in which there's. Um, a tremendous and and warranted and in, an incredibly like important, uh, hopefully trend you know it's, it's sort of um, um, dynamic recognition of anti-black racism. Where do Latinos fit in the in, in this moment? Yeah, no, I thank you for that that question, and I think I will. Even though we could talk about some of the 20th century moments, I will leave that to people who can buy the book. Um, and and let's talk about this. <laughs> Thank you. Let's talk about the, um, you know, this, where we are, especially after this amazing summer. Of course, this book was written before, um, before, um, it was written before COVID. And it was written before the, the, I think the real crisis um, that was, we kind of, our attention was very appropriately galvanized by the the police murder of George Floyd on Memorial Day. And, you know, here we are now in October. And in some cities, those protests have not stopped. Right. And so and and I was just thinking about it because there was a vote by the um, Los Angeles Unified School District to defund its police, you know, and basically say, look, that's that's millions of dollars. Let's take that money and let's put it somewhere else, right? And so the reverberations from this summer in which Black Lives Matter has been at the the, the forefront of the conversation, talking about reparations for slavery, you know, just so important. It's such an important overdue moment. And I think that, um, you know, some Latinos are sort of saying, well, why aren't we talking about, you know, Latino lives matter? And, you know, I, that just really frustrates me because I don't think that's the the way to intervene in this conversation. You know, I think that instead I would like us to, you know, and I talk about in the book, like, how do we understand how Latinos have been complicit in policing um, the the white over black uh, racial oppression, um, and how th- some of that still continues today, right? Um, so let's take a city like Chicago, where there is a, a there has been a Latino population there, Mexican-American, um, since the early 20th century, but the bulk of that, that Latino population came um, between 1960 and 1980, Puerto Ricans and Mexican-Americans, and it came because of white flight from black school integration, right? And so Latinos play this kind of buffer role. And in that regard, they are policing that color line and working to distinguish themselves, basically saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not black. I may not be white, but I'm definitely not black, right? And so we have to kind of interrogate, I think, our role, um, you know, at a at a community level, um, if not an individual level, of perpetuating anti-Black racism. I wonder, and so this is a, an uncomfortable question, but, but one we have to deal with. When we look at levels of support for Donald Trump among Latinos, those levels seem 
pretty surprising. I mean, it, it, you know, it, they vary between, depending on the pool, somewhere between 20 or 30%. But we, we might think, well, listen, you know, Trump has um, spent much of his time since 2015 demonizing Latinos. How can perhaps a quarter of Latinos support this candidate? Um, uh, is there, do, you ha- do you have some insight there? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you brought that that up. And I don't necessarily find it an uncomfortable conversation. I mean, I, I would rather it not be the case, but I don't find it uncomfortable to, to talk about. Um, so, so I guess, I guess I, I do, I mean, I do think that there will always be some portion of African-Americans as well as Mexican-Americans who peel off for Trump. Now that is, it's not going to be as large for African-Americans as for Mexican-Americans, but it's going to be, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a kind of, we could look at it at a gradient level, right? We could see, okay, African-Americans, maybe it's going to be 10%, right? But, but of African-American men, it's going to be higher than that. For Latinos, maybe it's going to be, you know, between 20 and 30 percent, but it's going to be higher among men. Right. We can see these these patterns. You know, there was a survey that came out um, yesterday that was showing in Florida that it was getting up pretty high and that it was particularly high among Latinos with a four year college degree. Well, that's a tiny proportion. Yeah, that may be true, but that's a tiny proportion of Latinos, right? You have, of course, the dynamic of um, 29% of Latinos in Florida being Cuban-American and Cuban-Americans being disproportionately Republican, right? So you're going to see in certain places, you're going to see certain trends. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, uh, all Cuban-Americans support Trump. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that only Cuban Americans support Trump, right? There are nuances in here. And what what I guess I would really like us to do is be able to look at the Latino electorate with as much um, precision and kind of care to see the differences in that electorate as we do with white voters. So we could say, oh, well, let's look at Latino suburbanites and let's look at Latinos who are over 50 and Latinos who are under 50. Let's look at Latinos in Florida and realize that Puerto Ricans are actually 27% of the state's population, just 2% less than Cuban Americans. And, you know, when you go from there, the next biggest population in Florida, this is going to surprise you and and others, maybe not you because you're so savvy about it, but Mexican Americans are 10% of Latinos in Florida. You know, that's that's probably not something that everybody knows. Venezuelans who are talked about as as being a large part of the electorate often, they're 2% of Florida's Latino population. What, what about race, though? I mean, I think that, that I think a lot of the things that you're pointing at are super important in terms of, okay, what's the, the history of Cubans in Florida and why might they be more supportive? What's the role of being college educated, um, we see a big gender gap. Um, do you see differences in the way Latinos are thinking about their racial identity that also corresponds, and, and you know, the, and it connects to this, to the to the prior conversation we were having about Latinos and anti-blackness, and 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 how we and how Latinos 
different Latinos position themselves in various ways in the American racial hierarchy. Do you see connections between that? And, well, and- I, I definitely see connections. I can't say that they're verifiable empirically because, and that's part of the problem, right, is you look at these surveys and they just don't have enough Latinos in the survey to do that kind of breakout, right, and sort of say, how do Latinos who identify as other, for example, in the census, how do they, uh, how are they polling for Biden or Trump right now? We don't have that kind of, kind of, uh, texture, right, in the data. Um, but here's something that I think is interesting. So when you look at the proportion of Latinos who define themselves as other, it is less in states that are part of the former Confederacy, Texas and Florida, than otherwise. So if you look at Mexican Americans in Texas compared to Mexican Americans in California, those who are closer to the border in Texas are more likely to say they're white than those in California. If you look at Dominicans and Puerto Ricans in Florida versus Dominicans and Puerto Ricans in uh, New Jersey and New York, they're more likely to say they're white in Florida and less likely to say they're white, more likely to say they're other up north. To me, what I take from that is that there's a the closer that you are to um, kind of a a very visceral uh, discrimination and racism and a kind of white superiority, the more that you're going to say that you're white to try to protect yourself, right? It's like a shield. Yeah, that's so, yes. Um, um, a claim of whiteness. I, I think you have a phrase in here, um, a, a claim of whiteness that is defensive rather than possessory, right? Like it's like it's okay defending yourself. Um, we've now reached that really tragic moment in the conversation where we need to wrap up. Um, so this is going to be the last question. I thought it'd be a small question, so it's something that is just really, you know very easy to answer succinctly in thirty seconds or less. This, the, you know, and and um. um this would be something that as an academic, you're not inclined to do, which is, you know, a lot of the book is saying, hey, here's how we've got here. Um, here, here are all these dynamics. But if you could be prescriptive, if you could be, if, if you could say, what sort of a racial identity would you want Latinos to have? What sort of an orientation towards race would you want Latinos to have going forward? Well, uh, yeah, and I love how how classy you are as a moderator to give me that subtle hint. Okay, we don't have a lot of time left. We actually do. We um, actually do. We, but, take your time. I, but it's such a know, huge question. But but do take your time. It, you know, I think yeah. absolutely, and I think that you know I've kind of showed my cards on this already. Right? Is that as we as we think about say the twenty thirty census, that we have to make that move to to do away with the Hispanic ethnicity question and put that Hispanic Latino category in the race question so that people can find themselves in this, in this, you know, so that we have a better match between how people are seeing themselves and how they're seen right. Um, by the, by the state in essence. Um, 
But that is only going to be effective if we have then a kind of more more genuine than we've had at least for 2020 effort to count people, right? Which means, oh, if we have a pandemic, we should be counting for longer and we should not be cutting off our counting in the census, you know, not having a citizen citizenship question and so forth. And I think it's particularly important because Latinos are such a young population. And it's about that inclusiveness that we we see in a term like Latinx, for example, right? What is it that makes these young people feel included and invested in this system of governance, in our democracy, right? That is I think how we how we do that, how we sort of manage um, Latino racialization is going to be very uh, impactful right now in terms of what those next five, say, decades look like for those young people who are now just aging into the voting population. So the so so. It doesn't count if I ask the same question a second time. This, it, it's, it, this really is still the last question. I'm just asking it again. But because, you know, you kind of talk about the census, and I think what you say is so important. But I'm really interested, like, I can imagine people saying, well, how should Latinos think of their racial identity? And if Latinos center a strong Latino racial identity as a basis for conceiving of themselves and structuring their relations to others, does that foster inclusion or exclusion? And I guess that's really the question I'm, I'm driving at. Do you have a sense, like if you could say to folks, if you could say, for example, even to the Latinx folks, to your students, hey, here's how you should think about Latino racial identity. What would you say? Yeah, it's not that I'm, it's not that I'm reluctant to have that conversation. I just don't see that, even though you're asking it in a different way a second time, I just don't see that necessarily as the, um, as the primary question, because I think it's, I think it's kind of, I think we're already past that. You know, I think we already see ourselves in those terms, you know, I mean, I talked to, to my son who's 23. I mean, he's not ambivalent about he how he sees himself racially and how others see him you know i mean it's it's distinctively not white but he's not in any way saying i'm native american or i'm black right you know he's not you know he's so i think it's very i think it's very you know it's very clear and and there's a i think as a i guess i'm more prone to think about it in terms of political terms right how does that you know, how do we, if if we're a political party or a political candidate, how do we harness some of that? That's a different kind of question, right? That's one that's pretty concrete and that certainly you and I have talked about a bit, could talk about for a lot longer. Maybe they can invite us back and we can we can talk about that in the context of, of your latest book, which is it was nicely framed behind us, Merge Left. Um, but but you know. I think it's more about about that. It's more about our society catching up to how people do see their lives, you know, the lived reality that they experience as Latinos is one that is about racial inequality and racial discrimination and also racial affinity, right? You know, in a positive sense. Yeah, that's so helpful. And and Laura, thank you so much. Um 
really incredible. And I really, really want to emphasize what you were last saying. This, this is an effort to, to reflect back on people's lived experience and then to provide um, some incredibly important context. And, and I really just want to emphasize um, La, Inventing Latinos, a new story of American racism. It's providing the context. It's providing the framework to understand where we are, how we got here, where we might be going. I urge all of you to buy this book, to read this book, to reach out and contact Laura. But for now, I'm Ian Haney-Lopez of UC Berkeley. Uh, and unfortunately, I have to conclude this program of the Commonwealth Club. Thank you all. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.